Hello out there. We have 4,000 people out here. Just want you to know. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Mark's Gospel, as you know, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark's Gospel was the first Gospel that was written. It's the shortest. It has the most mystery in terms of how it begins very abruptly and how it ends very abruptly. But it is the earliest of the four Gospels. In the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, there are nine different endings to it. Most scholars, even most conservative scholars, believe now that Mark's original ended at verse 8. If it did, then it ends at a point where the women who were the first to the empty tomb fled the empty tomb so fearful that they said nothing to anyone. In fact, verse 8 ends with a double negative. They said nothing to nobody. I love it. And so just as Mark's gospel begins with mystery, it ends with mystery because for these women... On that first Easter morning, something just wasn't right. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, had we been there that first weekend, had we witnessed the condition you were in on the cross, had we observed the condition you were in before they even put you on the cross, had we been there to see a stone rolled away and garments lying limp on the ground, more questions than we had answers, Lord, where would we have been? Would we have been able to speak? Would we have been fearful? Most certainly the answer to those questions is yes. And so, Lord, we can empathize with these women. 
We thank you for their experience. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look honestly at your life and your death and your resurrection and help us to look honestly at Christianity in our world and in our nation and in our community today. Help us to look at it with an honest eye. Lord, I pray that we would come to some satisfactory conclusion about whether or not this is right here. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not big on Messiah types. Perhaps that's because too many times and at the hands of too many of them, I've walked away disappointed. Oh, I've followed my share of them. They come up all the time. Every time you turn around, there was a Messiah type or there is a Messiah type. And and longing for something to deal with what I recognized in my own life as being wrong, I would follow after them, at least for a while, until I found out that they weren't what they claimed to be or they'd get killed and then we could go by and we could see their tomb and watch their body and see it decay and remember the memories that really were wasted time. So I'm not big on Messiah types. Been disappointed way too many times. We need something like a Messiah type, but I'm not big on them. So when Jesus came along with his claims of fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, I was, well, (laughs) skeptical. It sounded too much like what I'd heard before. And so I wasn't one who was just going to rush in and jump in and accept and buy into whatever he said. I was, well, I was skeptical. I first heard of him while I was traveling near the Jordan River. It was uh, spring of the year. My family and I had been just south of Galilee touring the Jordan River. It wasn't really much. I'd heard a lot about it. All the stories I'd heard about the Jordan didn't turn out to be quite as what I thought it was going to be, about like a big creek. That's what it was. Felt kind of disappointed. We were camping, camping south of Galilee on the Jordan River when someone said, you got to come see this. I'd heard about him, this man named John. I'd heard about him. Everybody's heard about him. The stories about him, the legends about him are rampant all over Palestine. So I told my kids, I said, we, we need to go see him. At least if we, if we go and see him, we'll be able to tell our children and grandchildren down through the generations. I saw John. And so he came to the Jordan, and there he was. He really wasn't much to look at, I'll have to tell you that. He needed a haircut, and he needed a good shampoo. His clothes were filthy. I wasn't within 20 feet of him. I could smell the man. I'm telling you, he was not much to be around. He was baptizing people. They were lined up to be baptized by him. I couldn't understand that either. And as he was baptizing people, he was talking. I wasn't used to that. The few baptizing preachers I'd ever seen, they didn't say a whole lot while they baptized people. It was almost as if they couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. But this John could. He could baptize you, and he could talk to you, and he could talk to the folks gathered on the bank all at the same time. He was a talented man, even though he didn't look like much, this John. 
I don't know what it was that drew so many people to him. Maybe it was his brute honesty. Maybe it was his absolute lack of pretentiousness that drew so many people to him. Whatever it was, he was baptizing people in the Jordan. And I heard him say this. This is what really caught my attention. He says, after me is coming one who's more powerful than I am, the, the, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, he said, but there's one coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, from anybody else, I suppose John's ranting would have sounded like mindless banter. But there was something about him that caught my attention. I can't put my finger on it. But I couldn't take my attention away from him. So I stopped to listen. And after about five or ten minutes of baptizing and ranting and talking and baptizing and ranting and talking, a man approached. He looked like he was in his maybe late 20s, might have been early 30s, bearded man, robe, no one really to notice among anybody else. He approaches the bank, and when he approached the bank, I saw John look up out of the water in mid-baptismal stroke, mind you. I thought he was going to drop the fellow he was baptizing, picked his right hand up, pointed to him. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of a sudden, everybody drew their attention toward this bearded man. And I'm thinking about what John said. Lamb of God? What an unusual thing. Calling somebody a lamb. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb of God? What could this possibly mean except a reference to the Passover? A lamb who takes away the sin of the people. A lamb who frees the people. Is this what... John is referring to, and who is this man John is referring to as a lamb? Heaven knows we need somebody to be a lamb. Here I am, I was an old man, fairly old. I guess some say I'd be middle-aged, right around 50 maybe. All my life, at least all my adult life, I'd come to the realization that we needed somebody. We needed a lamb, that's for sure. When I was about 14... I got to thinking about the thoughts that I had on a regular basis, and I got to thinking about some of the words I would use on a fairly regular basis, and I got to thinking about some of the places I found myself in, and I realized I was rotten. And I went through a period of depression because I realized I was rotten. There was something wrong in me. It wasn't that I was a... a, a I mean, I, I was a good person. I'm a good person now, but... But I found myself, I caught myself saying things, thinking things, doing things that I didn't want, I really didn't want anybody else seeing me do. Certainly didn't want anybody knowing some of the thoughts I had. And, and there was something wrong with me. And I started looking for some fix to my problem. I started looking for some Messiah type person who could fix my problem. I found out the definition of it, or, or, or the, the term that defines it, sin. They told me it was sin. So I began looking for a leader, and I couldn't find one. So I tried to fix it myself. Some folks told me, they said, you can fix it yourself. There were some self-help messiahs around. Some of them were in my own Jewish faith. Self-help messiahs will follow the commandments, 
do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? And here I was, I was looking at what they were saying and I was trying to do it and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't catch up. I needed outside help. It was almost like somebody sent me the doctor and the doctor conducted tests and he says, well, you have this disease. And I said, that's great. Well, go heal yourself. Well, I can. I need some outside help. And that's what I found out. So I began looking for these Messiah types and Felt really bad until I was about age 23 and I realized as I looked around, I wasn't the only one who was rotten. Everybody I knew was rotten. <laughs> Everybody I knew had these thoughts and said some of these bad words and did some of these bad things and found themselves in these bad places every now and then. And those that weren't in them, they wanted to be. They wanted to be there. And I knew it, and so I felt a little bit better about that. It didn't solve my problem, but I realized that everybody was there. Everybody's got this problem, which really made me stop and think, how in the world are we going to fix it? If everybody's got this problem, and I can't fix my own problem because I've got it, and they can't fix my problem because they've got it, and they can't fix their own problem because they've got it, we need some help. So a Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that would be a good thing, I think. I think I could deal with that. But how could this man, how could this man that John called the Lamb, I think his name was Jesus, how could he be the one to help us? He's just a man. Just a man like me. How can a man fix the sin of another man when he's a man just like I am? I didn't get it. But this man, this bearded man, Jesus, comes down into the water, and John, just like he'd done everybody else, he baptized him. John tried to get out of it. First time I'd ever seen John try to get out of anything, he tried to get out of baptizing Jesus. He baptized him, and then this, this voice came out of nowhere, my beloved son, something. I mean, people looked around. Where, what was that? Who was that? Where'd that come from? Nobody knew. And then Jesus comes out of the water, and he goes walking away. And I'm thinking, maybe, maybe this, there is something to this man. Maybe there is something to what he's saying. Maybe he's different from all the other Messiah types who have disappointed me so many times. And so I'm looking for some major league action after he comes out of that water. And you know what happened? He disappeared. For a month, almost a month and a half, the man disappears. Nobody knew where he was, where he went, what he was doing. You could ask anybody in town, do you know where he is? Well, haven't seen him in several weeks, don't know where he was, what he was doing. And so I'm thinking, well, there you go. Just another fly-by-night Messiah, man. Just another fad blowing in the wind. And, well, I walked away disappointed. While he was gone, the authorities arrested John. John, the one who had recognized this bearded man as a lamb, the lamb of God. John, they put him in prison, just on the other side of the Jordan River, in a prison called Machaerus. There he was. And to my knowledge, Jesus never visited him there. The one who said, I was in prison and you visited me, never visited John. And so I walked away again disappointed. I decided, well, there must not be anything to this guy. And then the next thing I know, after about seven weeks had transpired, here he shows up again. 
Jesus shows up again, and there are throngs of people following after him. I mean, to the thousands. Sometimes there were as many as 10,000 people following after this man. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I've been disappointed by this guy, but here he is, and all these people are seeing something in him. Maybe there's something about him that I've missed. So I decided to give him another chance. And lo and behold, right about the time I was about to give him a bona fide opportunity to be my Messiah, leader, rescuer, out of all those thousands of people, he chooses 12 guys to be his closest companions. Now, I'm not opposed to smaller groups, mind you. But you have to understand, these 12 men, they were, well... Let me put it this, they weren't the cream of the crop. They weren't the ones that I would have chosen. And mind you, out of the thousands of people following Jesus, there were some people who were, some smart people following him. There were some religious people following him. There were people who toted Bibles following him. And I'm thinking, why are you choosing these guys? They can't even seem to put one foot in front of the other, and you're choosing these guys? And what it left me thinking was, this Jesus doesn't exercise a whole lot of discernment in the people he hangs out with. And so my disappointment grew. And right about the time I was packing my bags to go back home for a third or fourth time, lo and behold, this man Jesus, he heals a man with leprosy. Now everybody knows that leprosy is incurable. People who get leprosy, they go, they put them in a cave somewhere. You don't get close to them, and they're not going to get over it. And here Jesus is. He has the gall to touch the man, and the man is healed. I mean, I saw him myself. If somebody had told me, I probably wouldn't have believed it, but I had seen him when he had leprosy, and I saw him after Jesus touched him, and his skin looked like the skin of a fresh newborn baby. It was unbelievable. And I'm thinking, I better unpack my bags, put up my tent again, this guy, there's something about him. And lo and behold, right about the time that I was about to follow him wholesale again, you know what he tells this guy? You know what he tells him? Don't tell anybody what I've done. He healed a man of an incurable disease, turned right around and says, now I don't want you telling a soul. And then he went and he gave sight to a blind man. Don't tell anybody. He helped a man who was deaf to hear and he said, don't tell anybody. I mean, what are you supposed to do with that? What kind of Messiah rescuer is that who does things for people that nobody else can do and then turns around and says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. We want to keep this under wraps. He healed several people then told them not to tell. I don't know. There's something just not right about that. And he did some other things that weren't quite right. He didn't fast like the other religious leaders did. Sometimes he worked on Sunday, and no religious leader worth his salt worked on Sunday. He should have known better than that. You don't work on Sunday. If you burn your trash, you're going to have white stuff fall all over you. And if you go fishing on Sunday, all you're going to catch is white fish. But here he went. He was doing that. He even went to some parties with that tax collector. What was his name? He chose him out. He was one of the 12. Levi. Some people called him Matthew. He was a scoundrel collecting taxes for the Romans. I'm telling you, Jesus needed to do a better job of picking his friends, and when he did great things, he ought to let people tell other people about it. Otherwise, how are we going to know? So I started having doubts about him. I wasn't the only one. You remember John, I told you, the one baptizing, the smelly 
God needed a haircut and a shampoo. In prison over in Macris on the other side of the Jordan, even John, while he was in that, in that prison, started having doubts. I think we picked the wrong one, he was thinking. He was thinking it. I was thinking it. I'm assuming everybody was thinking it, at least a lot of people. John even sent two of his followers, two of his colleagues over to Jesus. Are you the one we're looking for, or do we need to go looking for another? You just haven't exactly turned out like we wanted you to. And he didn't even give them a straight answer. Instead of saying, yes, I'm the one, or no, I'm not the one, he said, I'll tell you what, look at what you see here. The dead are raised, the sick are healed, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and go tell John not to be ashamed. What kind of answer is that? And what I found was that this man hardly ever gave a straight answer to a straight question. Somebody would ask a question, he'd tell them a story. They'd ask a question, he'd tell a story. Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, let me tell you a story. Well, Lord, who is my neighbor? You said love your neighbor yourself. Who is my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. Ask a question, tell a story. Is it that hard for somebody to just give you a straight answer to a straight question? My disappointment was growing. He did do some great things. He raised a dead girl one day. I mean, that she stopped the funeral procession. Stopped the procession. Pulled the funeral directors aside, opened up the hearse, and pulled the girl out. Mama right there beside him. He expelled demons from a man up at Decapolis. I was there when that happened. Boy, that was something. The man stayed out in the cemetery all the time, half naked. And he, Jesus, came by him, said a few words to him, talked to him like he had some sort of multiple personality. And all of a sudden, the next thing I knew, the demons were gone, went into some pigs, several hundred pigs. The pigs went running right down into the lake. Every one of them drowned right there in the lake. About $10,000 worth of pigs right down the drain. I mean, it was a miracle. There's no doubt about that. But couldn't he have sent the demons somewhere else? A lot of farmers spent a lot of time in recession because they lost those pigs. But it was a great thing. I mean, I can't deny that. One time he fed over 5,000 people with not much of anything. Next, next thing you turn around, about three weeks later, he's feeding 4,000 people with not much more than what he fed the 5,000 with. He walked on water one time. I'd never seen anybody do that before. And then all of a sudden, like a crazy man, he starts talking about going to Jerusalem and dying. I'm going to Jerusalem and dying, he said, over and over. I'm going to Jerusalem and dying. Going to Jerusalem and dying. A few more days and I'm going to Jerusalem and dying. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't die. I'm going to Jerusalem and dying. He was obsessed by it. Listen, dying is not what we needed. We were people who had a sin problem that we couldn't fix ourselves. He was giving some ounce of hope maybe that he could fix it, but he can't fix it dead, ladies and gentlemen. And so we were trying to get him to stop this dying talk and think about living. While you're living, do something about this sin problem we've got. Good grief. I remember when we came into Jerusalem. It was on a Sunday. There was a lot of hustle and bustle about the place. People were, were, were throwing branches and coats out in the, in the, in the way as, as, as he was coming right through. I remember it because we came into Jerusalem and just on the side of the road there was a, there was a, a fig tree. Had leaves all over it, no fruit. Wasn't time for fruit. And he came up to the fig tree 
looking for fruit, and when he didn't find any, he cursed the fig tree. I remember it because the next day when we passed by, that thing was dead. You'd have thought it had gotten frostbit. And I couldn't understand why he would do that. But there was a lot that I couldn't understand in that final week. We entered on Sunday. The whole week was a whirlwind. Every day we were in and out and in and out of the temple. And we were arguing and debating and answering questions and questioning. And, and people were gathered around trying to figure out who he was and what he was doing. It was a whirlwind kind of day. And before I knew it, it was Friday. And he was nailed to a cross. And I have to tell you, it was exhausting. Because every dream we had got nailed to that stump. Every hope we had garnered, thinking that he was going to rise up and do something marvelous and victorious and wonderful, was all nailed to that piece of wood. Dreams we never tasted, three years we wasted. I felt deflated. We all became exhausted. I even passed out. No, I wasn't drunk. I was exhausted. And when I woke up, finally woke up, I'd lost all track of time. I don't know how many days had gone by, a couple or more. I didn't even know exactly where I was. Had to get my bearings straight. Finally, when I caught wind of my mind, I gathered my belongings and I started my way back home. That's when I met the women. That's when I encountered the women. They were in a hurry. Their faces, their pupils were enlarged. Their, they were flush red. They looked like they had seen ghosts come running down, not even able to speak. What are y'all doing? I knew who they were. They'd been with us in our group the whole, the whole three-plus years. What are you doing? What's the matter? They couldn't speak. They just seemed to rush by me. And finally, the lady who was, who was the last in line, she managed as she, as she ran by me to turn. She says, he's not there. He's... And I couldn't get the rest of it. I knew they were talking about Jesus, though. They were coming from the direction of that tomb. So rather than go home, I figured I better rush up there to that tomb, see what they're talking about. Sure enough, I got up there. The stone had been rolled to the side. Nobody was there. A wind whistled around the inside walls of that cave, and it produced a whistling sound that I can still remember. It's in my mind. And I thought, well, what a dreadful way for this week to end. We come into Jerusalem with all kinds of hopes. All of our hopes get nailed to a piece of wood. Buried in a cave. And now the body's gone. I should have known. The skeptical side of me should have reared, it, reared its head and known. I should have known. How can a man, albeit a good man, deal with with my sin. Everybody knows that God himself would have to come and deal with our sin himself. God is the only one who could deal with our sin and overcome our death. Not a man, not a crucified man, not a missing man killed on a cross, gone from his grave. So I stood there by that cave, looked in as the clothes lay limp on the side of a hewn stone. And I thought, something is not right here. 
or is it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, when we stand alongside those ladies who fled that tomb that day and we look at our hopes nailed to a cross and a body missing from His tomb, it would be very easy for us initially to look at that and think something is not right here. But Lord, when we think about it, only You could pay the penalty for our sins. Only You could take responsibility for the evil in this world. And the fact that you did it and then overcome death, all of a sudden what appeared not to be right is so right it is unmistakable. So Lord, we, we stand at the mouth of an open tomb and we look at the place, in our minds, we look at the place where you lay. And you are gone. You're risen. And in your death on the cross and in your rising up from the dead, you took care of our problem. We hinge our faith on the events of this weekend. And we thank you for being our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.